Today's episode of the Hidden Figures podcast is brought to you by Nubian Skin. Nubian Skin is a lingerie, hosiery and intimates brand for women of colour. Frustrated by the lack of suitable nude lingerie and hosiery to match her skin tone, Ade Hassan decided it was time for a different kind of nude. So for all you beautiful women, next time you need something in your nude, head to nubianskin.com and enter the code HIDDENFIGURES in all caps for 10% off your purchase. This code is valid for all products and the offer ends at midnight on the 30th of June. Hello everybody and welcome to the fifth edition of the Hidden Figures podcast. Um, Today I'm really happy to have a um, good family friend um, here with me today, Dele Ogun, who um, is, um, if if I'm correct in saying this, the the founder of the first black-owned city law firm. Um, in the UK, is an author of four books, four different books, um, and does a whole host of other things. Um, so I guess just to, just to, if you don't mind, could you introduce yourself in terms of, obviously you said that, or I just mentioned that you're the founder of the first black law firm. What What is it that you guys do in terms of legally? Just, just a quick one, two minute introduction, who some of your clients are or that we might have heard of, if you feel free, disclosing that information and yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, it is the first black-led city law firm uh, established uh, 22 years ago at a time when uh, even city, black city lawyers were a rarity. Uh, most of the lawyers in our community were immigration lawyers, uh, uh, criminal lawyers, uh, family lawyers. Um, the, the, the commercial lawyer, the corporate lawyer, was a sort of rare bird uh, from our community, and uh, I had been practicing in the city for ten years with uh, some of the major law firms. Uh, my last firm was Hogan Lovells. I was practicing there as a corporate tax lawyer uh, for six years before I then decided that we needed to move the boundary. We needed to get to the next level. The next level was our law firms uh, doing the same kind of work as the. Uh, city corporate law firms were doing, uh, commercial law, uh, corporate transactions, takeovers, uh, heavy commercial litigation, uh, commercial arbitration, international arbitration. Uh, so we did a whole range. People are surprised that, or, uh, about the breadth of our coverage uh, that such a small law firm uh, can do so much. We are regularly up against uh, some of the, the Trojans of law, the, uh, uh, the Taylor Wessons, uh, the Eversheds Global Law Firm, and mm. they find this law firm, Akin Palmer, uh, on the other side. Um, uh, the clients that we've um, we've dealt with over the years, they range from, and I must give him a special mention, uh, because he came on board at a very early stage in the life of the practice. Uh, this was uh, Jazzy B of Soul to Soul. Oh, yeah. uh, w- when I was making my transition, uh, from being a corporate tax lawyer to uh, a more general commercial lawyer, uh, we had a, uh, an instruction uh, from Jazzy. And I remember uh, going down to his studio in Camden Town. Yeah. And the studio setup was very much like this. And he had his, uh, all these gold plate uh, oh, records, records all, all, around, over yeah. the, all over the wall. Uh, it was ironic because the boardrooms that I'd been used to visiting had portraits of... Uh, Van Gogh and, and all the rest of the world. Yeah. And here was Jazzy B with his, with his various gold and silver platinum discs 
uh, all over the wall. Uh, so yeah, that's one of the household names that we dealt with in the early stages. Uh, moving on, we are now, I'm almost regarded as Mr. Specsavers. Oh, yeah. Specsavers is my, is, is my, has almost become uh, my brand as far as law is concerned okay. because I've represented uh, many, many of the stores across the country. Yeah. Uh, Specsavers has, is a franchise operation, has about 800 branches across the country, yeah. let alone across the globe. And um, uh, we've become the, the lawyer of preference or the law firm of preference uh, whenever a dispute arises uh, between any of those stores mm. and uh, head office in Guernsey. So oh, wow. uh, my Fantastic. nickname has become Mr. Specsavers. Yeah. I have a, I have a regular supply of glasses. That's so. <laughs> <laughs> certainly a blessing, I can tell you that. As a blind person, glasses are very expensive. Um, so I just want to kind of take it all the way back. Um, and if you could tell us about your childhood. So I understand that you were born in Nigeria, um, in a small village in Nigeria, in Ondo State. Um, if you could tell us a bit about your childhood and then moving to Lagos. And also, if you don't mind, we're having some mic issues, so I'm going to go and fix the mic. But you keep talking in the meantime. But yes, yeah, um, no, not a problem. If you could just tell us about your childhood and how that went. Yes, not a problem. No, I was, uh, I was born in paradise. I call it paradise because I did my village is in the rainforest belts of, uh, of Nigeria stroke West Africa. And um, I uh, latterly built a house there, and at the back of my house, if you look through the windows, you see the rainforest, just beautiful. And down at the bottom of the valley, uh, and it's still there, is the stream where we as children uh, used to swim and play. This is nature's swimming pool yeah. with pure water purified by the foliage. Uh, that's where we we played every day. That's where we collected our drinking water and then marched up the, the, the side of the valley back to the village settlement. Um, so there, I was a child of innocence in that respect. Mm. Um, uh, nature uh, it was kind to us, uh, perhaps too kind to us. Uh, but there came a stage when, uh, at the age of six, I was uh, effectively kidnapped from the village. <laughs> uh, they, they weren't... Uh, they knew that my grandmother, who I was uh, uh, being cared for, who was looking after me, uh, would never have agreed for me to be taken out of Aide and uh, taken to Lagos. Uh, but my father, who was then living in London, sent instruction for his brother uh, to take me to Lagos. And so I remember very early one morning as the cock crowed, uh, on the second, second cock crow, uh, that we were well, he woke me up and said, get up. And next thing I was on the back of a, a motorcycle. Next thing I was on the Benin Expressway Junction. Oh, wow. Next thing I was on the back of some lorry <laughs> heading to Lagos. Oh, uh, wow. I didn't know it was Lagos. I was yeah. just heading somewhere. Uh, and I spent, um, so there I was wrenched from my childhood friends, no chance to say yeah. goodbye, etc. Uh, trying to form a new life in the very, very different environment uh, of Lagos, mega city, yeah. even then. Uh, the noise, uh, the hustle and bustle, very different from the placid uh, uh, village life. Uh, and um, I spent a year there learning uh, English at a rudimentary level because all I spoke at that time was Yoruba in the conquest, uh, uh, <laughs> in the conquest manner possible. <laughs> uh, and so, but because my father had uh, plans for me to come to the UK, uh, I was effectively taken to Lagos to go and learn rudimentary English. Okay. I spent a year in Lagos, 
before at the age of seven, I was then put on a plane unaccompanied. This was so my... Bef- before you go into that, if you don't mm. mind me asking, what's it like moving from a village? It's very isolated. You said you were just dealing with nature. Um, you know, it's a close-knit community, I'm assuming, um, to this massive city, sprawling. I read a bit of your book and you'd mentioned it was dirty, you tried to run away. Just yes. If you could kind of almost paint a picture of like, just moving like worlds apart from these two different places and w- what that must have been like oh, yes, being the was, village boy almost. It was, I, I mean, it was, it was so destroying that move because, yeah. as I said, I was a child of paradise and we were all children of paradise. Yeah. And um, we had no cares, no needs. Uh, we didn't have bikes or anything like that. We didn't have footballs, but we made footballs from whatever we could get. Mm. Whatever, you know, maybe a coconut shell yeah. will be what we start kicking around as a football. Yeah. And um, so uh, it, that is the ultimate place for uh, the childhood experience. Yeah. Um, and then to be taken to Lagos, which was, it really was smelly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, especially downtown Lagos, where I was. It's they call it uh, Isaleko. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's downtown Lagos, they call it. And uh, this is where the um, Lagos in the, in the early stages was a no man's land. So it was a land of settlers mm. all coming in and everybody living on the edge, corrugated iron roofs, etc. cetera, mm. uh, small shacks, open gutters running through. And I remember the mucus, the smell was so strong that the mucus in my throat wouldn't allow me to to sort of sleep properly. Uh, right. That's how it was back then in, 19, uh, in 1968. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and also the, the closeness of village life. You know, everybody was your uncle, everybody was your father mm. in the village setting. You couldn't get lost. How could you get lost in, yeah. in the village? You, you just, everybody knew you. Every, you knew your way around. I have a smaller child. Um, whereas in Lagos, <laughs> I got lost pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, uh, huge roundabout cars going all around the place. I didn't know which exit was which. Yeah. In those days, the police were still quite civilized and disciplined <laughs> in Nigeria. I remember, I was uh, vividly remember, I was lost at the roundabout, Tafabalewa Square. I was lost mm-hmm. and I was crying. Uh, and uh, a policeman uh, got me and... Uh, uh, bought me an ice cream and took me back to the police station and somehow they found me. Okay. That thing can't it's happen now. Yeah, that thing can't happen now, yeah. You certainly would be if you survived the experience at all. Yeah. Um, and then to London, yeah. uh, flying unaccompanied on a plane, oh, seeing wow. the white person for the first time. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, the air hostess who was sitting next to me. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in between her, you know, traveling up and down, she would yeah. then come back to the seat and just looking at that skin. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it, was, it was strange for yeah, me as a I child because, it. you know, when I was almost like transparent, translucent yeah. sort of thing. And um, it was an odd, uh, I just kept on looking at her all yeah. the way through her, <laughs> her hair. It just didn't look the way I was accustomed to. Mm people looking. Yeah, so, and I guess in know, those days you didn't yeah, have like, TVs I, that you were watching white people. Precisely, and here's the, here's the irony that I was coming from a place where she looked the odd one out, mm. and strange, and I was coming to a country where yeah. the roles would be reversed. Yeah. I'll be the odd one out with the curly hair and the black skin and all yeah. the rest of that amongst all the white boys and white girls, etc. Yeah. So it was an interesting crossover yeah. uh, that we were having. Uh, and in the early stages of... Um, uh, life in London here. Lucky I was a good footballer. I was a good footballer. 
and they assumed that I was a good fighter. You know, this comes from Africa, he's a good fighter. <laughs> and so I didn't really get the bully because I yeah. love football. Okay. And, um, and you, moved to, you moved to Islington, right? Yes, Islington, yeah. Highbury, Islington, in okay. the shadows of the Arsenal. Okay. In those days, I hated the Arsenal, but that's where I was, Drayton Park Primary School, okay. in the shadows of Arsenal Stadium. And um, we got on very well, though, the young English boys and girls. And oh, yeah. the street where I lived, it was almost like something out of Coronation Street. Okay. You know, where they all live in a, in a... It wasn't an estate. Yeah. They were all small houses. Small terrace houses. Yes, the yeah. one up, one down. And I remember in those days, they always used to leave their front doors open. It was almost like the village, okay. uh, where there were no doors. You just walk in and out. Sort yeah. of and everybody was in an each other's house, and we would always be going to hybrid fields to play football. So how do, how do people react to you? As I said, warmly, uh, yeah. because there were lots of young boys there, and because I was a good footballer. And so we had a, yeah. Other, were there other, was, it, was there other ethnic minorities there at the time, or were you like... In that area, yes, there was, I remember there was a Brazilian boy who was also a very good footballer, yeah. and his cousin, um, and we had a great football team, Whistler Street Rovers. Oh, yeah. uh, we used to play, we used to go around, and there was one of the, as they do still today, it will be the father of one of the boys who drives a van, and we'll yeah. bundle in the back of the van, go and play our fixtures, go and play our matches. So childhood was was sweet and innocence, mm. both in Nigeria and in London. Mm -hmm. But then there comes a later phase of life where uh, the serious business starts, mm -hmm. where you are, you go to secondary school and. Uh, that was, that in Islington? That was, that was Highbury. That was okay. Highbury Grove uh, Boys Secondary School. Yeah. I understand it's a mixed school now, but uh, Highbury Grove Boys Secondary School in those days. The girls' school was up the road, Highbury Hill Secondary School. Um, but ours was all boys, and it was 1,400 boys. Oh, wow. And that, that, that was a, an experience because these were boys from all over. You had Greeks, you had Turks, you had, you had Jamaicans, Caribbeans. And it was whole. So it's a very mix, multicultural school. Very multicultural school. Okay. Very multicultural. Uh, we weren't the brightest, but we were fun. Okay. And um, <laughs> we, a uh, uh, few of us, uh, made it through to the sixth form. Yeah. Um, I think I was the only black survivor for the sixth form. Okay. Um, um, and then you're starting to think seriously about the, the life ahead. So um, sorry, just mm. to take a step back, it's a conversation I've been having with quite a few of my, of my um, guests so far about kind of what school, kind of institutional racism, for want of a better term, in 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 the schooling system or just in the system. Full stop. I'm just wondering, like in the '60s, '70s, when you came here and you were in the secondary school, did you kind of feel a particular expectation towards black students, or was it pretty much just based on your merit, your intelligence? How how, how would you, no, I, I, I had a, my experience was positive. Mm. I mean, um, I perhaps expected less of myself than some of my lecturers or teachers okay. um, saw in me. Okay. Um, partly because I was the first uh, born in the family. Mm. Um, I was the first uh, doing, uh, heading towards university mm. or thinking of going to university. Neither of my parents were graduates. All the graduates in our family were back in Nigeria. We had mm -hmm. uncles, etc. So we knew about the graduate life mm -hmm. uh, by um, by proxy, but mm -hmm. rather than by you know direct uh, parenting experience. Mm -hmm. 
And so at the secondary school, um, I was afraid of being seen as clever. You know, I just, you, oh. maybe that was born of always being the the one who stood out for colour reasons. Yeah. But I was afraid of also standing out uh, as being clever. Mm. <laughs> Wanted to almost dumb down a, a little. Yeah. I remember because I was initially doing four A-levels and I was the only one doing four A-levels in the school, oh. uh, in the sixth form. Yeah. And I thought, well, I ain't standing out there. They think I'm gonna clever. I'm gonna be clever. I'll drop one, even oh, though seriously? I mean it was a struggle as to yeah. which one to drop because I was good at, at, at all the subjects that I chose. But eventually, I, I, I dropped one. But I say in seriousness that um, um, I didn't see the institutional racism. Mm. Uh, maybe because I've got that go lucky, can do spirit mm. anyway. And if it's lurking, my spirit will infect you, yeah. and you, you <laughs> respond to me positively. Um, such, such that I was the first. There were six houses. Yeah. Um, the boys were divided into six houses: uh, Oxford, Bedford, Gloucester, York, Richmond, and etc. Et and um, I was. Each house had about six hundred, uh, around about four hundred boys in. And I was the first black um, house captain okay. uh, of one of the houses. Okay. Um, and I remember my reward was to give a speech at the school assembly, all 1,400, 1,500 boys in the school. Oh, wow. And that was a terrible experience. Mm. But it made me into a public speaker later. Okay. You know, that, that terrible speech that I gave as the first black head boy of one of the houses yeah. now led me to doing something about public speaking. Mm. And now I uh, regard it as an accomplished public speaker. Mm. Uh, so it goes to show how the negatives can be turned into positives, into positives yeah. depending on how you respond to it and embrace it. Yeah. Um, so I remember reading in your book that whilst you were really smart, and I'm hearing now that you tried to dumb it down, but nevertheless, whilst you were really smart, you never did well in your in your actual exams. Yeah. Um, and I... I you learned in your later life that it was because you were you were um dyslexic. Yeah. Um but nevertheless it seems as though you constantly underperformed when it came to exam situations. Um even to the best of my knowledge, you got into some of the best universities in London mm. to do to study law, but then your A level grades just didn't match up. Absolutely. Um if you don't mind, could you tell us about kind of dealing with the disappointment of that, um, kind of studying really hard then not getting not getting there, yeah. knowing that you've got the mental capacity to be there, but not, yeah. but it's just not translating. Yeah, very true. Because everything I do, I sort of apply myself. I yeah. never like to cheat myself. Whatever I do, yeah. Uh, if it's football, I, I'll <laughs> I'll work hard on the pitch. Yeah. Uh, I push to get the best. It's yeah. almost like the orange juice. You've got to squeeze every last bit yeah. of juice out of the. That's my approach to life. And similarly, as far as studies are concerned, I read a lot. Mm. I used to put the time out, go to the library, and, and put the work in. I really put the work in. Always expecting to finish high, and then finding that each time the exams came, the grades came in low, mm. however much I applied myself. And it took me a long time to uh, understand it. Uh, the, I carried the, the disappointments um, mm. all through the early stages that I will teach people uh, concepts that they did not understand mm. and they'll end up getting better grades than I did. Mm. Um, but again, whenever you have a setback like that, the proper response to it 
is not to despair and give up. Mm. Uh, is to the proper response is to face that difficulty and start asking why is that happening to me mm. and looking for the solution. And the it was when I became an undergraduate. Um, uh, I went to a polytechnic, and mm. polytechnics were not the places you go to if you're going to be a top commercial lawyer, mm. if your aspiration was to be a top city commercial lawyer. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the early stages, that's militated against me because they'll look at the CV and they'll say, oh, in a London comprehensive polytechnic, mm. whereas they're expecting for a commercial lawyer, they expect to see public school, uh, Oxford, Cambridge, or Durham, or one yeah, of those one of the Ivy League, Russell group, yeah. Ivy League, Russell Group universities, and there you've got the Polytechnic of North London, as it yeah. was. Uh, so that really stacks the odds against yeah. you. You've you've really created an uphill task. Yeah. But it was frustrating because I knew that when it came to actually dealing with concepts uh, and dealing with the subject, I was better than the ones who were getting the better grades yeah. and going to the good universities. Good universe, yeah. um, so it was in the final year of my degree when um, I had to get an upper second. In the days when upper second were very hard to get, mm. uh, due respect to the new generation, there are a lot of upper yeah. seconds out there. Uh, but in those days, they really were very hard to get. So most people get two twos? Then? Most people get two twos. Okay. And I needed to get that, that two, one. two one, yeah. especially to make up for the fact that I was at a polytechnic, not a university. Yeah. And if I got a 2-2, two -two, it was going to be a no-no as yeah. far as commercial law is concerned. So, so your eyes were on oh, commercial law? Oh, my eyes were fixed on commercial law because I, I, I knew that I understood the concepts uh, very well. And um, whereas criminal law was good enough, um, but uh, that new frontier, I was already had my eyes on that. Okay. Uh, and so the final year of the degree was when I was studying with fellow students, uh, or they dragged me along to the revision. I used to like studying by myself. Yeah. Um, but I knew that I was technically strong, and they needed me there to help explain some of the law concepts. concepts. So reluctantly I went, and I remember uh, they, uh, I was asked to explain the facts in a particular case, and I dried up within seconds. Mm. Uh, nothing was there in my memory. Mm. Um, and a girl who I had been explaining the concepts to uh, then took over, and she gave a long uh, explanation, narrative, detailed. Every detail was there, and that caused me to s reflect. I said, she struggles with the concepts, mm -hmm. but I'm struggling with remembering the details. Yeah. There lies my problem. Something in my brain process is stopping me from holding that detail. And, mm -hmm. of course, exams are all about Typically about memory, detail, memory yeah. and recall. So that helps me yeah. uh, because what I then did was to change my options. I, I went for subjects which required um, understanding rather yeah. than memory. Memory, okay. And by going for the ones that played to my strength, yeah. I'd have got the two ones across the board I and see. just made it through with a two one. And the rest, as they that. say, is history. I then that took me to the city law firms eventually. Okay. But the bar first. Well, just before that, um, I understand that you went to 
when you grad when you graduated from sixth form and you got your A levels and they weren't good enough to go to the unis you wanted to go to, you took a gap year and went back to Niger. Am I right in saying that? That's right. Um, I just want to get what was that like? So you've you're born in Nigeria, you've grown up in Nigeria till you're seven, I believe, mm. and then you move to London and you become a London boy. You become somewhat British. You take on the identity of the UK. What's it now like moving back to Nigeria? How do people respond to you? Did that even make you question your identity? Just those. I guess the question is more around identity. And yes, um, it, was, it was. It uh, was. And was that your first time going back? That was my first time. Okay. Um, since my, you were seven. Since I was seven. My okay. father had no interest in going back. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, and it was my own decision. What uh, made you want to? Cousins were coming over from Nigeria yeah. uh, for summer holidays, and they would always be staying with us in the family house. And uh, I, there was a connection that I had with them, mm. and there was a confidence that they had. Uh, because Nigerians are always very confident. Yeah. Um, but I had good reason to be confident in those days. The oil price was really strong. Uh, the universities were vibrant. They were good places to study at. Yeah. And these cousins of mine were at the University of Ibadan, which was the first premier university there, yeah. the equivalent of Oxford-Cambridge here. And we used to have the dialogue and the, uh, their love of music, the everything. I could now see what I had left behind. Yeah. Uh, through these relations that were coming across. And I made a resolution that I was going to go back. And so I took a year off from uh, studies, uh, took, got a job and saved to take me home. Okay. What and were you doing? I was working in the Inland Revenue Tax Office okay. in Edmonton, I recall. Okay. Uh, yes, I just any job would do. Yeah. I got the job, worked in the tax office, saved the money and went home for the holiday. And wow, what an experience it was! The, yeah. the, the sort of the the return of the prodigal son, if yeah. you like. And I remember it was very emotional because as the plane touched down, I saw the earth of Africa once more that I had been away from since the age of seven. And as, as what I, are you eighteen this time? 19? I was around nineteen, 19. eighteen, nineteen. Yeah. It's been, um, it's, been, yeah. it's been a good amount of time, yeah. Indeed. And um, there was the earth. Uh, and as I came down the stairs, I almost wanted to kiss that earth. <laughs> you know, I knew that I was, a, <laughs> that I was an African at heart. Yeah. I just felt the emotion uh, there. The, and also the, the climate, you just yeah. knew you were home. Yeah. And for, for the first time in a long time, I was almost anonymous. Mm. Um, you know, you're amongst your own people. You ain't standing out any longer. Mm. You're amongst your own people. At the airport, bus, everybody's just going all over the place. They're only looking at you because of the clothes you're wearing. Mm -hmm. But, uh, of course, I quickly got my native, put yeah. my native on, uh, feeling the part. And I was taken home to my village. My grandmother was still alive then. Okay. And uh, she hadn't seen me since that kidnap episode. And so... From from what I gathered, because she wasn't expecting you to go she, at all. She, she was. This was almost just like literally the return of the prodigal son. It really was. It really, it really yeah. was. And she wasn't told that I was coming. Okay. And all of a sudden, I'm taken to the village by an uncle. As the car pulls up, up outside the family compound, she's um, she's almost collapses at the sight of me. Mm. Almost collapses. And I remember sitting outside her house after the initial en engagement and embrace. 
that it was masquerade season and I hadn't heard the sound of the masquerade for a very long yeah, for time. A decade plus, yeah. And there was I sitting there and that noise is terrifying. Yeah. When you start hearing those uh, carry shells and the yeah. jingles and the bells on the feet and the thud on the soil and all of a sudden it emerges from around the corner in twilight just as you know the uh, uh, the sun is setting yeah and wow I was so for those who don't know because obviously I'm Nigerian so and speaking to my parents and my family I've got an understanding of what that is but for some of the listeners who might not be Nigerian or might be Caribbean or might even be Nigerian and not know about it what is masquerade season what's the significance of masquerades what are they yes they're supposed to be the the our forefathers returning from the dead Mm. and sometimes they'll be benign and sometimes they'll be wicked and uh they'll always carry a stick yeah. and, uh, and they'll lash yeah. and whip you. So it, f- it stills fear in the young children in particular. Yeah. And so that fear was still with me from, you know, from, from back child. then, yeah. from childhood, where we used to scream and run away when they hear the sound of the masquerade coming. And, um, and you th- I'm sitting there thinking, I know that's a masquerade. Yeah. They ain't running. And yeah. as, it's coming cl- yeah. <laughs> as it's coming closer, <laughs> there comes a point where you think, should I be getting up and <laughs> running inside the house? But yeah, the funny thing is, was that the masquerade actually recognized me. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah he, when he saw me, he said, uh, sitting outside that house, he lost sight of his, uh, he, he, he lost his purpose. Yeah. And, and said, um, which means, is this oh, not yeah. Akindili? Yeah. <laughs> they're supposed to, yeah. they're not supposed they're not to talk. Supposed to they? talk. Yeah. And the way they talk is a like muffled voice. And, yeah. yeah. Um, so he wasn't supposed to recognize me, yeah. but he gave the game away that it was one of my cousins. Or oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, if you could go on about, so, so you were saying that you'd gone to the village, masquerade season happened. Um, what else did, what else did you do whilst you were in Nigeria? Was it? Just oh yes, you go to. I went to the nightclubs uh, yeah. in Nigeria, the parties in Nigeria. Oh gosh, and the ladies were so fine in that country. <laughs> <laughs> they were so fine. I mean, uh, <laughs> they, they because maybe because of the sun, yeah. the colours that we wear out there, yeah, is, yeah, very is vibrant, richer yeah. and vibrant, and you're not covering up so much yeah. every year. Uh, and oh my days, we're compared to what we were. You know, ladies in London generally, I observed, that tended to wear dark colours and black. Yeah. Tend to be the favourite yeah. outfit. Whereas these ones will wear, you know, lovely yellow, bright yeah. red. Yeah. And um, just a general warmth and then uh, of the whole community. Yeah. And then you'll see scenes on the streets. You know, it's almost like... Uh, a movie theater, just sitting in a taxi. Yeah. Uh, characters, because then you used to share taxis with people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get onto the Molwe bus. I always observed that the Molwe bus in Nigeria, and, and to this day it probably still does, these are the yellow buses yeah. um, that everybody scrambles on, and it's really a wrestling match. Yeah. You, you need to be strong to get on a bus. And the bus will either lean to the left or lean to the right, and that's mm. because they you know, the overloading. They're yeah, always, the you find the bus always tilting one way and some of them hanging on the, on the sides, on the sides yeah. of the buses. <laughs> and that sort of, there was theatre in the chaos. Mm. Um, here was an orderly, regulated life. You put your hand out, the bus stops for you at the designated bus stop. Uh, there, um, anywhere is a bus stop. Mm. Uh, you just jump on when you can. Um, if it's slow enough, you, you're you're on it, um, and 
people just start conversations with you. Mm. You know, here people are very private. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, they don't talk to strangers. Where do I know you from? Mm. I don't know you. Whereas there, everybody knows you. Mm. Even if they don't, they just start talking to you. Mm -hmm. And so the conversation flow was um, rich, warm, uh, very entertaining. Mm. And when I had to come back, I really didn't want to. So how did, how did people react to you? Like, what, <clears throat> did they now see you as the British, the oh, you boy kid? Or were you, be, be, you know, was it more like, oh, he's back, like, he's back amongst us? Uh, how, what was the reaction? Oh, the, sure fa the family. changed everything. So. Yeah, no, the family was, oh, our boy's back. I yeah. Mean, they were, obviously, they were shocked that I wasn't speaking the language any longer. Yeah. Because uh, be, their first reaction is to speak to you in Yoruba. And uh, when you're responding in English, as I used to then, mm. uh, then they will... They know something has gone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, they don't care about that. Yeah. Whether you understand or not, they just keep talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> you start picking little yeah. bits and pieces after a while. And um, no, the, the welcome was very, very warm. Okay. Very, very warm. I encourage any young person, mm -hmm. uh, whether they're born there or not, uh, to, you know, you, it's an experience. If, if the, there are those of the religious bent who do pilgrimages mm. and they go to Mecca and they say they must do it in their lifetime when they go to Jerusalem. Uh, I would encourage every young black person, uh, young African, to go home yeah. and treat it as a pilgrimage yeah. uh, because the, the experience is, it is spiritual. Yeah. You really feel something overcoming you when you touch that soil. Yeah. Uh, when you eat the mangoes fresh, <laughs> when the pineapples are there in the ground live, mm. uh, right there in front of you, the bananas, uh, just everywhere. Mm. And um, and if you can get to the villages as well, mm. you can find somebody in your family who's still in touch with mm. the village. Uh, that's where the spiritual experience is even higher. Mm. Uh, there amongst, as it was, and yeah. as it still is. Yeah, uh, I, I commend it to everybody. Yeah. And you mentioned that when you moved, when you got back to Nigeria, and you kind of alluded to it as well, in terms of when you went to, when you went to England, how all of a sudden you just fit in. So in England where you're the black boy. Yes. Um, it, when you move back to Nigeria, suddenly you're just, you're just any other person. There's, there's no significance to Absolutely. you. Um, what was that like, I guess, just as a teenager, as a child, being the black Boy, was that something you were very conscious of? Do you feel like people treated you any particular way? Or was it more just a, a self-awareness that everybody else looks different and I'm the only one with the curly hair and the dark yeah. skin? Yeah, in England it was the self-consciousness. Yeah. Um, there'll be moments that you would, that it will register uh, more clearly. Uh, much more in the world of work rather than in school. Mm. Um, school is, a, it's, it, there's, a, there's a nice spirit amongst young people mm. studying um, you're 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 bonded by that 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 journey that challenge. Yeah. Um, the word of work is when you really feel it. Mm. In contrast, as I say, when you go to when you're in your own country, when you're your own homeland, mm. there you are anonymous. And the, I bring that point home by mentioning uh, uh, there was a chap, uh, was a black American guy, mm. who became my business partner. We met in America, and he came over to the UK. And uh, his dream was to marry a Nigerian woman, and, <laughs> and, he, and he eventually did. He married. He, he fulfilled his ambition. Yeah. And um, he he was one of these ones who had the spirit of home strongly 
mm. even though he was a black American. And he was at uh, Columbia University, one of the Ivy mm -hmm. League universities. And um, he, uh, his degree program had a, the option of spending a year in a foreign country. So it was a mm. four-year program because spend one year in a foreign country. And he decided to go to Nigeria. Wow. He persuaded some of his colleagues, he said, come, let's go. And he went to Nigeria just before I met him. Yeah. And he told me, because we used to spend a lot of time talking about these issues, the black American experience, yeah. uh, the African experience. And uh, he, what he said on one occasion has never left me. He said that when he went to Nigeria, for the, he said, provided he kept his mouth closed and said nothing, everybody assumed that he belonged. Mm. Everybody assumed that he was a Nigerian. Mm. He just walk along the street by himself mm. until he spoke. Yeah. Nobody knew yeah. that he didn't belong. Yeah. And that was, uh, that he helped me to understand. And there was the second thing that he said to me was that uh, when I used to talk about my village and we had uh, uh, not a village meeting in London, but our group, the Ikale group is uh, one of the 22 tribes of the Yoruba, Yoruba mm -hmm. nation. Uh, and the Ikale had one of the smallest, but we have a, a collective here, and we used to meet. And I told him on one occasion, oh, I can't be bothered with these uh, meetings. And he told me off at that point. He said, you don't know what I would give mm. to know which part of this world, planet that I came from. Mm -hmm. And you are lucky that you know exactly where your village is, mm. where your forefathers were. He said, I'll give anything for that. Mm. And that made me appreciate what we have a lot more. Mm. And so um, since then, I've built a house in my village. Okay. Uh, I take my children to the village. Mm -hmm. They're bigger now, as you know. They're yeah. your contemporaries. Uh, but they get, they're going to go this year as well. Okay. Uh, we're going to get them back home. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I guess after all of that then, as you were saying, you came back to the UK and you went to... Uh, was it? I know it's London Met now. I don't know what it was. Yeah, called. it was the Polytechnic, Polytechnic of North London. Polytechnic of mm. North London. So, like, you've got into, from what I remember, you got into LSC, SOAS, Queen Mary, which are like some of the best unis in the world, mm. let alone mm. in 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 the UK. Um, what was it like now having to take that step back? So, sort of, I'm sure your whole family was like completely gassed, like, oh my gosh, my son's got into this great university, this, that, and the other. You don't get the grades, you do the gap year, you come back and you, you, you go to London Met, which, as you said, was a polytechnic. Yeah. What was that like? Well, my parents uh, didn't have an issue with it, thankfully, because okay. I was the first to go to uni. Uh, to go to yeah. uni. So any uni, <laughs> they, were, <laughs> they were happy. He was any just going to plus. uni. Yeah. He was going to university. Yeah. Um, but having said that, uh, that uh, my my original uh, plan was to go to LSE um, rather than the Polytechnic of North London. But I did not regret that decision afterwards okay. or the outcome. Because, you see, um, part of the reason I didn't want to go to, I personally didn't want to go to the uh, major universities was that I was tired being in, of being the only one, oh, the yeah. one in the class, yeah, or one yeah. of a few in the class. Yeah. I, uh, bear in mind, I've had this Nigeria experience now. Yeah. I want my people around me. Interestingly, <laughs> I, 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 well, obviously, you know, I went to LSE. Yes. And I went to LSE for... 
the same reason, but I specifically, because I felt like out of the good unis, if I was to go to like Warwick yes. or Oxford yeah. or Cambridge or Exeter or something, and I didn't like it, and firstly, I'd be, I'd, I already knew going to a good uni, I was going to be one of the few. Yes. And I thought, right, if I go to one of these unis and I don't like it, I'm stuck. Yes. Like, I'm stuck in Durham. I can't just, <laughs> I can't just walk to my yeah, friend's place home. or catch a bus <laughs> or whatever. Like, yeah. I'm stuck. Whereas I felt like, oh, if I'm in London, yeah. I still have the experience. I can still go around. I can still see people. Yeah. And I'm in London. Yep. Like, I'm in the heart of black culture in the yeah. UK. Um, so it's interesting that you said yes, yeah, it's but, interesting but I can, that I can p- completely relate. To, it's interesting to that, that yeah. one generation on, yeah. that was exactly my thought process yeah. to say, I need to enjoy <laughs> my graduate years. Yeah, and I go to these interviews, and all all the other candidates are looking just too white for my yeah. life. <laughs> you know, I was, <laughs> I as I said, I came from an ill and London comprehensive yeah. where there were lots of uh, everybody was there except in the sixth form. I said, I don't want that experience again. Yeah. And when I went to the Polytechnic of North London, uh, one of their social evenings before I gained admission, and there was everybody. Yeah. My people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was everybody, my people. And I said, this is where I'm going. Yeah. I said, this is where I'm going. And of all my siblings, yeah. um, I think I had the most enjoyable graduate experience. My sister... Uh, my youngest sister went to Exeter University, which yeah. was highly regarded was for law. <laughs> highly regarded for law. Oh, did she study law as well? She studied law as okay. well, but she didn't enjoy her law years yeah. like I did. Yeah. I enjoyed. So, and that's the way to study, I think. I yeah. think in order to, you need an environment that is supportive. You need an environment that is enjoyable. You, you know, studies should not be uh, too hard in all respects. Mm. It's hard work intellectually. It mm-hmm. should be challenging, but it should be the best way to conquer that uh, and to come to terms with that intellectual challenge is to have an environment that you're really enjoying yourself. Mm. And so, yeah, every day I look forward to, we'll make noise in the, when we're playing snooker, we're yeah. playing music and we're, you know, uh, et cetera. And then we'll go and focus on the studies. Mm. And then we'll have our dance and a conversation the politics, you know, that's when the political animal started to be Yeah, I was about awakened. to ask about that, because obviously I think poly- most of, most African countries got liberated in the 60s, 70s. Mm. Um, so I guess a lot of you, a lot of the people in the uni would have been kids from that generation of, of liberation. Mm. Apartheid was still happening in South Africa. What, what was the mood like amongst, amongst black students at the time? Yes, apartheid was the big issue yeah. at, at the time. I remember still on my wall, I had the apartheid poster. That was one of the first posters that I had on my on my wall mm. uh, as a as a young man. And the conversations at the Polytechnic, we had students from Swaziland, we had a, another friend from Kenya, mm. and uh, so the discussion was radical political. Mm. Uh, and I was slow in catching up with the political discussion. These guys were ahead of the game. They had schooled at home and, um, and come over to study, whereas I had received the education in, in England. In England, And yeah. you see what you're taught in your, in your history lessons and 
A-level lessons is Tudor history and mm. medieval history and all the yeah. rest of that, and maybe Germany and Russia. Yeah. But that's, Europe, that's not really story, yeah. your that's issue. Your, history, yeah. your issue is Africa. Yeah. <laughs> and these guys were so knowledgeable, they'll be throwing out the names of Kenyatta and this stuff. Yeah. And I would think, gosh, these guys know so much about <laughs> these issues. Um, I, but they sparked an interest. Mm. Um, and I had to, I don't like being behind. When you start yeah. talking about things I don't know about, I'm going to go and read up on them. Yeah. And so I got up to speed fairly quickly on the Mugabe's and mm. the, and the, uh, and, the um, uh, and the Mandela's and all the rest. Of that. I got up to speed on those issues pretty quickly. Mm. So, uh, yes, uh, I really enjoyed my graduate years, London Metropolitan University, as it now is, mm. uh, what was the Polytechnic of North London. If I was to go around again, would I go back to the same place? Mm. Uh, yes, I would, 100%. because I enjoyed it so much. Okay, that's great. Thorough enjoyment. And I'm wondering as well, because you just mentioned that you had a lot of people come from abroad, mm. and I know this was something I found when I got to uni. When you meet the, the London-born um, or UK-born Africans and Caribbeans, we're a lot more we tended to be a lot more quote-unquote revolutionary and anti-establishment and so on and so forth. Whereas when you met a lot of the foreign students coming over, they, they, they're part of the status quo, they're part of the establishment back home where yes, they are. Yes. And they kind of come here with that mentality. Was there any clashes in, in that aspect or, or were you all kind of united in your anti anti-imperialism for want of a better term. No, they were, I think you're right, it was the same features still present yeah. because they were typically, if they could afford to come over and yeah. pay the overseas students' fees, fees yeah. they were typically children of the affluent, uh, children of the winners mm. in that society, mm. the ones who were enjoying the, the social structure because every social structure has winners and losers. Yeah. Um, and uh, these were typically coming from that background. So they didn't have the fire in the belly yeah. uh, in that way. They didn't see issues uh, in race terms in a way that uh, black Britons mm. see them because here you're living as a minority on a daily basis. Mm. And so those issues, uh, whether you I want it present, or not, yeah. are ever present. Uh, whereas it was strange to them and they were they did tend to be a little bit too dismissive mm. of the problems Mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. uh, those growing up in this environment will have. Mm. Uh, they think, uh, oh, you're just lazy, and mm. uh, or uh, the blacks in the community are just lazy, there's opportunity around them, you know, what's up with them, you know, back home we're all doing very well, etc. Mm. Um, so there was that little, um, uh, wouldn't call it tension, uh, but different perspectives. Yeah. And, um, and they needed a little bit of education. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, another question I wanted to ask about your uni experience. I understand that you became somewhat of a DJ. You had, like, your own sound system. <laughs> um, and I, I got two questions around that. One, um, I know that, because you wrote in your book, that a lot of your client base was a, was amongst, like, ACSs and African and Caribbean oh, yeah. society. Yeah. So one question is, how much did that and does that still play to kind of your 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 ability to, I guess, your commerciality, if that makes any yeah. sense. Do you have to, do you still find yourself having to rely on the black community for 
in order to make money as, as it was when you were a DJ. And mm. then also in terms of the sound system culture, it's a very Caribbean culture. And mm. I, I guess at that time, most of the most of the immigrant most of the black immigrants in the UK at the time were Caribbean. Mm. Was there what were, were, were there tensions between the African and Caribbean communities, or was it all very kind of harmonious? At least in your experience, anyway, was it all very harmonious? Oh no, we loved each other. We got on very well. Okay, uh, the Caribbean women were very beautiful, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we um, we loved their music. Yeah, yeah, you're right because there were few Nigerians yeah. in those days. Uh, what we have now is very different from what we had then. So the clubs that we went to were Caribbean clubs. Uh, the music that we listened to was Gregory Isaacs mm. and uh, Dennis Brown, Barrington Lever and all the rest of that. We skanked better than the Jamaicans. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, <laughs> Nigerians could dance. And so once we studied how the skanking went, yeah. uh, we will skank like anything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, we had a very good relationship. There was none of the... Uh, none of the tension mm. uh, in this when we were studying they tended to be Caribbean students we'll be studying with and this, my sound system base 69 was uh, in London at least it was uh, a first generation one of that of the first generation sound systems mm. because then uh, soul to soul was a sound system mm. um, uh, led by Jazzy B before they started going into music production etc mm. they were that successful uh, the other big sound system then was Roxy. Mm -hmm. um, whenever Roxy used to <laughs> organize an event, yeah, tickets yeah, sold out. Up. They sold out. And Base 69 was good. Yeah. Um, we were, I had a good ear for music, mm. uh, still do. And I was the lead DJ. Mm. Uh, so the other guys would warm up the turntable for me before yeah. the dance before would start proper. And, and uh, we were playing at uh, the universities, the Black yeah. Student Society, the ACS. Uh, societies then um, we would travel to Kent ACS to go and play for them mm. and um, um, we, would we would travel all over uh, and mainly it was uh, reggae mm. uh, lovers rock uh, calypso mm. and soul mm. that was the combination the Nigerian music scene was still very much reliant on the black American in those yeah, days. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. Yes, the 80s soul, the Shalimars and all the rest of that. Mm. Um, that there was a, I, I did observe a slight distinction in music tastes because uh, Nigerians dance non-stop. You know, yeah. we, 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 we dance in the morning, we dance in the afternoon. <laughs> we, 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 when the light is on, we dance. In yeah. fact, don't turn the light off. That's yeah, how Nigerians yeah, exactly. dance. Because <laughs> they want you to see them, what we're wearing, how we're moving. <laughs> Whereas the Caribbean one, all the light's off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, they don't want you seeing them in the dark, etc. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there was an interesting contrast in the cultures then. Um, but now the Nigerian music scene yeah, has, right. has really come alive. But... Uh, I digress a little, and in terms of how that fed into the law practice, uh, in the early days, you, I had to, it was a new frontier that I was trying to break into. Yeah. I was coming from a top city law firm where the clients of that law firm were the household names like Barclays Bank and um, uh, Piano Ferries and all the rest of that. Yeah. If you're leaving from that level, uh, you're leaving on your own. You know, you you haven't got a following. 
Yeah. Because those big corporations need a huge setup to support and to meet their legal requirements. So you're starting with a blank sheet of paper. And so I had to strategize in terms of where my client's going to come from. And you've got to go back to your own community yeah. at that point. And my focus was very much the uh, Afro-Caribbean society, uh, partly because I also wanted them to step up uh, to set up businesses as well, that mm. we needed to make the transition as a community mm. from being employees to employees. being entrepreneurs yeah. and to be employers. Uh, we needed to create jobs uh, and not just to do jobs. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I tailored my my services to them. Um, and um, in the early stages, they were mainly the foundation. You know, yeah. you, you're fishing your own waters. Yeah. I always regarded the selling to the uh, mainstream community as like almost export. Yeah. <laughs> but my domestic market, I needed to contain always. and control my domestic market. I needed to be the lead law firm within the uh, uh, African Caribbean community. And we took we took that position very, very quickly. Yeah. And we haven't let go since. Yeah. You know, we, uh, we, our clients sometimes, they're parts of England that I haven't even been to. You know? yeah. uh, uh, black clients, Liverpool, uh, Manchester, Birmingham. Yeah. Um, because when they're in need of a commercial law firm, uh, they will sometimes... <laughs> not enough yeah. they'll sometimes look for their own yeah. it's a funny thing I often say that uh, our people tend to look for their own when they're on their way down yeah. rather than when, when they're on their way up <laughs> <laughs> no in the early stages <laughs> where they're really on their way up when there's no money they'll look for you yeah, yeah, they'll yeah. come and find you, you when there's no money, money yeah they say look I ain't got outside. money bro yeah. you know, but I need some yeah. advice on that. <laughs> as soon as the money starts coming in <laughs> it's like the car you drive <laughs> <laughs> they say who's your law firm they, say, they don't want to mention one black law firm that nobody's heard of yeah. they want to mention uh, Slaughter May Freshfields yeah. when the money finishes on the way down they come and then look for you again interesting um and um well sorry I've I've got a whole bunch of questions <laughs> here I'm trying to work out which one to ask. But um funnily enough, going going back to sort of partying and DJing and all that type of stuff, you, there, there was something you wrote in your book about how you used to have this um light skinned friend. I can't remember yes. what his name was. Trevor. Trevor. Yes. And um I remember you saying how as a dark skinned man um, it was harder for you to get attention from girls compared to um, your lighter-skinned male friends. Yes. Um, I think colorism and the kind of um, differentiation between dark skin and light skin is something that's very much a hot topic. Mm. Even now, um, just on the way here, I was talking with um, two of the young people I'm with now mm. about um, one celebrity, Maya Jama, who mentioned something about dark-skinned women and how much of a big thing it became how much how much did that play back then how much do you still see it perpetuated here or perpetuated nowadays yeah i mean it, it was a big factor i think it wasn't helped by the fact that most caribbean parties were in the dark yeah <laughs> <laughs> so if you had a dark skin it was a struggle to see your features uh, uh, so um so it was, it was a factor you found yeah. that the the light-skinned boys uh uh, they could be as ugly as anything, but simply because they were light-skinned, they were yeah. pulling the finest babes. Yeah. And whereas uh, the dark-skinned guy, good-looking, well-structured, chiseled, yeah. Uh, yeah. but because the lights are off, yeah. no, you, <laughs> the girls, and it was that dark in those rooms. Yeah. Uh, we have to remember, you know, it wasn't like there was a little light. Yeah, it was dark. It was yeah. You know, there was, I remember All Nations Club down in uh, Hackney, uh, in Dalston. 
uh, area and you go uh, one dance, I ended up pulling a man for a dance because <laughs> it was so dark. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and it was only his reaction that convinced me that I've probably got the wrong species here. But uh, uh, that's, that's how bad it was. Yeah. And, and so it created the, the pressure on the black guys, the darker guys, to almost to lighten up, you mm. know, um, and which was a worrying trend. I think it's, and, and the thing they didn't know was that my understanding, some of the the mixed race girls, the super light skinned ones, actually wanted the dark guys because they wanted to get back home in a way. Oh, yeah. They wanted their children <laughs> to come back home yeah, in a way. Yeah. They were trying to react and get away from from, yeah. from that complexion. Yeah. Such that uh, if we had known then, we would have gone after the <laughs> super light skin ones. <laughs> Taking advantage yes, of it. Yes. <laughs> but I, I, it's, 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 it's still an issue yeah. over here uh, because society makes it an issue. Yeah. And the establishment make it an issue. I, you know, you watch the news, uh, you find that many of the news presenters or TV presenters are the light skin. Mm. Uh, women rather than the dark-skinned women. Mm. Uh, you look at, even at a political level, mm. um, you'll find that the, the mixed race will be, uh, will be given the opening way before the, uh, the, 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 um, darker skin. the darker skin. The, yeah. the, um, um, and, and you see that all over. You see that in politics in this country. You see that in politics in America. Yeah. Um, the reality is if Obama was... Uh, proper black, yeah. dark skin uh, uh, Negro. Yeah. Uh, that that history won't be made they, yet. Um, and yeah. certainly, if his wife was of of, of that complexion, it's yeah. not going to happen. Um, so that is still out there. Yeah. yeah, in a big way, nobody can deny it. Um, it won't change until the fortunes of the darker skin world change politically. Mm. Mm. Uh, when there's a when you're successful, uh, people really don't then care what you look like. Yeah, you know you could be as as uh, as dark as you want. Yeah, uh, but if you're successful in whatever you do, yeah, uh, uh, then people will embrace you for that. Yeah, um, and so there was quite an interesting bit in your book where you spoke about how um, once you then graduated. Um, with your two one, you were applying for all these law. I think you you started working for what PwC was called. I can't remember. What yes, Price Waterhouse Coopers. It was then called uh, um, Coopers and Librand. Okay, so how how did you end up there? What, what was yeah, because I there? was my real strength to this day is arguing cases. I'm pretty hard to beat. Yeah, and the well, the establishment. <laughs> yeah, no, well, <laughs> no lawyers can argue, but yeah. I have to say that you know, as a compensation for my dyslexia. Yeah, because uh, that's how dyslexia works. It takes yeah. one thing away from you, but, but it gives you something yeah. different. And I, what it gave me, different, a special skill, was the ability to see through situations, almost like a X-ray vision. Mm. So you can pile as much data as you want on me and try and drown me in paperwork, I'll see through to the issues pretty quickly. Mm. And that's what I used to uh, in the firm, mm -hmm. so as a result of which we are able to beat big law firms, mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. as we are. Um, but So my original career path 
and, but I'm glad it didn't work this way. Again, I say again, sometimes when things don't go your way, uh, don't despair because mm. sometimes it leads you to a better, path, a better yeah. path. Uh, my original calling was as a barrister. Uh, my uh, plan was to be in one of the inns of court, uh, uh, practicing as a barrister on a day-to-day -day basis, just arguing cases mm -hmm. daily. The bar uh, didn't open up to me, the commercial bar. I applied, rejection, rejection, rejection. It was a combination of factors. It was uh, the Inner London Comprehensive, mm. the Polytechnic, because mm -hmm. I was applying for chancery work, which is commercial work, mm -hmm. um, and a name. Mm. Um, and the yeah, name then, yes, to, yeah. the name then, you, um, now I'm known as uh, Dili Ugun. Yeah. Uh, then it was Akindeli, that's my full first name, yeah. Akindeli. Uh, and the surname was Ugun Timuju, uh, which was long. Yeah. So when you put the two of them together, yeah. Akindele Oguntimoju, mm. that is Smith. a long yeah. name. That is John Smith coming yeah. through the door <laughs> with his CV. Uh, how are we going to pronounce that name? Yeah. Their, uh, will be their logic. Uh, and so my CVs will go off. And I remember the only barrister chambers, despite there was this super brilliant lawyer knocking on the door, let me in. I'm great at law. I'll be a real asset in your chambers. And Rejection. Some of the rejection letters will come the next day's post. I still don't, haven't yes. worked it out. You post your application one day, yeah, and your rejection letter was the next day. <laughs> Unbelievable. So even <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's. I remember the, that experience, and um, I. I then um, so it was only a criminal bar, ch uh, criminal set that offered mm. me pupillage. And at the same, in the same week, I got an offer from Coopers and Library and the accountants mm. to come and do, join part of their tax law function. And I had to weigh it up. As, as what, sorry, as an accountant? It, as a no, I was, I'll be a lawyer, okay. but working as part of their tax team, dealing okay. with legal issues there. Um, so it was narrower than what I wanted, okay. uh, as opposed to being a commercial barrister. Mm -hmm. um, and I had to sort of, at that point, I was at a crossroads. Yeah. And I had to make a decision all by myself. I couldn't really get guidance from my father. Um, he wouldn't understand the issues. Mm. Um, I had to make a judgment call. No one to turn to. I reflected on it, and I decided that I won't go down a criminal route to become a criminal barrister. I still need to stay on the line of commercial. Mm. And I'll go to Coopers and Librand, leave the bar, so I was walking away from, moving away from the profession yeah. to the accountants to go and do whatever law I could do with them in, in the tax function. Uh, after three years at Coopers and Libran, I now thought I need to get back to the law firm. I was, mm. I was seeing flashes of what I could do um, in terms of the law with yeah. Coopers and Libran. And I said, no, I need to get back to my back real calling. To um, so I now started applying to the law firms. Yeah. The big city law firms. Rejection, rejection, rejection. Yeah. Went to a recruitment consultancy, uh, rec recruitment agent, gave a CV. Oh, your CV looks good. Um, we'll place you no problem. Send a CV out. Not a single invitation for an interview. Mm. Now, the CV still had because, of course, that's what they used to put on your school certificate mm. when you're secondary school, well, primary school, secondary school. Mm. You're not, nobody's warning you 
mm-hmm. that in the world of work, this might be a problem. This might count against yeah. you. So naively and innocently, the CV is going out there. So he sends the CV out. No invitation for an interview. But this guy was a Jewish guy, luckily. And he said, um, I can't believe this. I know these jobs are out there. It's my business to know mm. that there are vacancies out there. I speak to these guys and I know there are vacancies because I'm there to fill those vacancies. Mm. I think it's your name. He said, if you don't mind, I'll take your name off the CV and I'll send it back out. I said, you can do that? He said, yeah, all the time. That's, um, if you're working in an establishment and... You don't want your competition you don't want, to know. Yeah, you, you don't, don't want your, your colleagues, your, your firm yeah. to know. So they'll just put the applicants. Okay, yeah. So, so that's what he did with you. He anonymized me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the applicants went to this, got a upper second honours, masters, this, this, yeah. this. Um, next thing, two of the top law firms were inviting me like for that. an interview. Crazy. And I remember he said to me, he said, uh, this is disgusting. <laughs> he said, you could sue them for a lot of money. Yeah. And I said, I'm not interested in their money. Yeah. I just want you just wanted the, the experience. Yeah. I need the experience. I know what I'm going to do. Yeah, I knew because that helped me to uh, again to every experience you draw from and I said well if it's this hard getting a job at the lowest entry level yeah what's it going to be further down the road yeah exactly when yeah. I'm 30, 40, 50 yeah um, I've got to go in grab the experience and get out and set my own law firm up. Oh, so it's your, it was your, it was your intention right from, right, right, there, from the get-go. right there. As I was walking in, <laughs> as I got in there, yeah. I said, right, this, this is, is a strategy yeah. to get out. So I was thinking about the future. Yeah. I think many of us make the mistake of enjoying the job too much yeah. and not thinking, what am I going to be doing when I'm 50, mm. uh, 60? How mm. do I want to be living? And it's an important lesson for us. We need to reflect on the road ahead yeah. and plan it and so I'm the envy of many of my colleagues now yeah. only because I was doing my thinking yeah. that rough then, road yeah. <laughs> that's why I say sometimes adversity can play to your advantage Definitely. if the road is too smooth and open you don't get the knocks early yeah. and you don't get to strategize and think whereas if you've got the early knocks that I did in terms of trying to get in yeah. whereas the Caribbean boys they had English names yeah. and so they got interviews yeah. and they got into the positions yeah. And they didn't have the hard knocks. Me with my Akindele Uguntumuji, yeah, all doors barred yeah. and closed against me. Yeah. I was set thinking, so, okay, the road ahead. If it's this rough now, it's going to be rougher when yeah. you're older. So therefore, you've got to plan. And so I planned. While I was in the law firm, I was grabbing any work. I never turned work away. Mm. They say, you, you're busy? I said, no, I've got capacity <laughs> for more. Yeah. Uh, I would stack the work up. Yeah. You know, because I knew that it's it's like a professional footballer. I always laugh at professional footballers when they complain that uh, that's what they do is work, hard work. I've never known any person uh, at work when the boss says, oh, you, I don't need you to work today. I don't need you to stay on the bench. Yeah. And they're upset. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it goes to show you, it yeah, ain't exactly, work. Yeah. <laughs> so that was my you attitude. You want to be working. You want to be playing now. all the time. You want to yeah. be playing. I don't want to be on the bench. So that was my philosophy. That was my attitude while I was in the law firm. Mm. I was, I didn't want to be on the bench. Mm. Give me the work. Give me the work. Give me the work. I'll pile it up. I'll put the hours in because I knew that that was skilling me up. Exit strategy, shaping yeah. me for the exit strategy. Such that six years 
later, I was ready. Okay. Yeah. And so, what? I guess, what was it now like? This has been your goal, this has been your dream, it's what you've been working towards. You've had to take a detour, now you're there. And you're in the heart of the establishment as well, like barristers um, in the city doing corporate law. It's like pretty much all public school, all Eton-esque, mm. all Oxbridge-esque. And now you're the black guy from um, from North London Poly mm. um, with, with a background in in an accounting firm so you're not you've not you've basically not come along the the, the direct path mm. did that become like a chip on your shoulder oh, was no. it was it a thing that people did you find people were looking at you any particular way or was it i got in just like everybody else and and everybody kind of just took you for oh yeah within within yeah. the law firm no once you're in there because mm. you've you've got through the barriers you've got through the hurdles mm. um and obviously, the, the older partners are curious because they're yeah. the, this is the first black yeah. lawyer today. I was oh, were you the, the first one? I was the first permanent okay. black lawyer. That generation, this was uh, uh, 1991. Yeah. Um, there were two of us who were the first blacks in the city law firms. Okay. Uh, both called Dele. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. I was Dele Martins. The other one was Dele Ugin. Okay. Um, and Dele Martins was at Slaughter May. Okay. Um, he had a similar similar story, mm. but he had an English name, so that helped. He, yeah, but he, his CV was very good. He went yeah. to a North East London Polytechnic, then went to Cambridge for his masters. I went to North London Polytechnic and the LSE for my masters. Okay. So we were almost tracking yeah. each other. So he was at uh, Slaughter May, and I was at uh, what was then Lovell White, yeah. now called Hogan Lovells. Oh, okay. And um, because we're first of a generation, of course they. The older partners want to test you. So what's, mm. this, what's this guy capable of? Yeah. And um, so the first file that I was given, I knew it was a test. Yeah. Um, you know, for myself. Yeah. And and also uh, uh, on on the partner's side as well. Mm. But when I showed him what I could do, of course Homer nods yeah. and says, "Yeah, this, this is the real deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the real deal." And thereafter, no, I was very popular in the law firm, mm. extremely popular. You know. Our people, we, we are, uh, when we're good, we're very good. Mm. Uh, when we're good, we're very good because we bring uh, something else beyond just the, the, the usual. Yeah. Uh, we bring personality, character, mm. charisma. Mm. You know, we bring all of that to the equation as well as the intellectual. When you've got that blend... They don't forget you. I mean, I walk into Lovell's yeah. these days. I'm, I'm still uh, a celebrity figure oh, yeah. uh, amongst them. We have a very good relationship. Oh, that's good. Uh, they invite me back to speak from time to time. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, no, so it was, it was a uh, excellent uh, yeah. relationship because they, you know, you showed that yeah. that brilliance, uh, intellectual brilliance, is not a preserve of any race. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. ain't the preserve of any race. Yeah, and uh, if if one race is uh, sort of at the top and dominating, and uh, our peoples uh, are further back, there's a reason, mm. and you got to search for that reason. It ain't genetic. So what is the reason? It, it ain't, that, that's what my other book is. Yeah. <laughs> my other book's are all about that. The, the, in essence, um, it is uh, s structural yeah. reasons, p 
structural, not genetic. Yeah. It ended people. I was concerned that a lot of us, our community generally, we're beginning to blame ourselves that we're just not as good as yes. the white community. Yeah. And some of the white racists have started thinking that their brain is bigger. Yeah. And that the black brain is just smaller, uh, not as clever. Uh, there was one chap, uh, um, I referenced it in my book, The Fatherless People, um, uh, uh, a chap called Nicholas Wade, uh, who was uh, a science editor for the New York Times, who wrote a book, uh, uh, A Troublesome Inheritance, Genes, Race, and something like that. And basically mm. he was arguing that from the time of the Industrial Revolution, the white race, evolved into a new human race. Different from us. Scientific racism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Different from us. Yeah. yeah. This is the New York Times. Yeah, This yeah. is a science editor. Yeah. And I read this and I said, what total Crazy, nonsense. Yeah. Because, of course, what leads them to that erroneous conclusion is uh, they've taken, if you take a snapshot of the West and a snapshot of the state of Africa, mm. you would probably be led down his nonsense thinking mm. that, you know, if this is 2018 and this is what Africa looks like and this is what the West looks like, yeah, then they must, they can't be the same human beings. Yeah. They can't be. Yeah. It's not possible. But once it is understood how the colonial experience, not the slavery, mm. not so much slavery, the colonial experience, how that crippled and how the post-colonial arrangements mm. sustain the crippling of the, the best of the blacks, mm. the best of the Africans, how the colonial system was rigged to keep those ones who would have made the difference out of control mm. of the political machinery in order that the fruits of empire could continue to flow. Yeah. You know, so they're now dusting off the Commonwealth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> I, I actually thought that they wouldn't be so audacious as to you have know, Prince Charles. Yeah, and, uh, I don't know if I want to start as the successor that, no, to yeah. the Queen. Yeah. In order to try and persuade the rest of us, it really is a Commonwealth. Commonwealth. It's, it's, it's crazy. They're not it's that actually clever, crazy. Are they? Mm. Well, it's it's actually crazy, but. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of questions I want to ask you. Otherwise, I'd probably go off into that. Um, but I, I know that when when you did start working in the law firm now, um, that you, I can't quite remember the name of it, but you were like the head or you were one of the leading figures in a kind of black network of, yes. of lawyers. Yes, um, And I know that you'd... Um, taken on the law society around um, in, around minimum wages mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I, I just want to know what were the kind of challenges that black lawyers specifically were dealing with at the time and what was it that your group was doing to help overcome them? Yes, uh, the group was called the African Caribbean and Asian Lawyers Group. Okay. Uh, and so these were all the lawyers of colour coming together under a single umbrella and I was the first chairman uh, of that organization, not mm. the founder, but the first chairman of the organization, um, because this was a phase, the entry phase, is almost like the parallel was coming through, let's say you just landed on a plane from Nigeria or Jamaica, yeah. and you're at border control, 
Yeah. <laughs> and border, you're trying to get in on yeah. the other side. And there were we lawyers or log students yeah. coming in. And yeah. there was border control yeah. in front of us. And we're trying to get through those gates yeah. to get in to practice. Yeah. And as I said, I was the first of a generation getting into the uh, top city law firms as a permanent lawyer. There were trainees, yeah. but permanent lawyer. Yeah. I was the first of a generation getting in there. And we knew that there were others out there. Uh, I knew that my sister was studying law, for example, mm. with an aspiration to get in there. Um, and so we were, uh, that organization was trying to force the door open mm. to say, we don't buy the narrative that uh, members of the uh, African Caribbean and Asian lawyers, uh, African Caribbean and Asian community mm. are not, bright enough to do that kind of law. We don't buy this explanation. Mm. Uh, let us in and we'll show you what can be done. Mm. Uh, because we've seen, and I was fortunate to travel to America, uh, to the American Bar Association conference, and there I could see black lawyers who are partners in the top law firms. Yeah. Big law firms, I couldn't believe it. You guys are partners in these firms, whereas we're still at the, right at the bottom, knocking at the door idea. trying to get in as trainees. And so we had to force the pace yeah. and to make an issue of it. Um, that even now there's still an issue uh, in terms of getting in. It's easier now for your generation mm. because they have practiced with uh, the the... Dele Ugrins and Dele Martins and yeah. all the others. Yeah. Uh, they've, they've, they know uh, that it's not a question of they can't do it. In fact, mm. they can do it very well. Mm. Um, and even now, uh, uh, Africans, Caribbeans are beginning to emerge mm. as partners mm. in the top law firms. But the struggle isn't over mm. because there is still this color barrier, particularly in the judiciary. Mm. The judges, mm -hmm. um, they will have you believe that uh, the black lawyers are just not good enough to be judges. Mm. Uh, nonsense. I'm up before these judges uh, regularly in my daily work. And these judges are barristers like me, my generation, mm. who are now judges. Mm. And so we know that it's not an intellectual thing mm. at all. We know that back home we have brilliant judges. Mm. Back in the Caribbean we have brilliant judges. So how comes that it's okay, here it's not translating, that yeah. you're not seeing it? Now they're bringing in the, the white female judges are coming in through in numbers. Mm. I, I find it funny. I always find it funny that in a profession that historically was dominated by males, and most of, um, you go across the world, you know, most of the judges are male. Mm. But when it comes to England, uh, there are more female judges, white female judges. Mm. Uh, uh, and it's a rarity to find the black male judge. Judge, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, f I, f I find it interesting. I mean, obviously, my, my listeners will know I work in equality and diversity so I do like equal pay audits for for organizations but just in general the whole diversity 
conversation is overwhelmingly around gender. Mm. I remember when I got to university, I was just really shocked. Like mm. I'd, I signed up for the diversity class, like, yeah, this is going to be proper interesting. And then I just learned about feminism, yeah. for, which, to be honest, was really good for me because up until that point, I was completely ignorant about anything to do with feminism and mm. gender rights and so on and so forth. But it just really struck me how little it's to do with race and um, ethnicity and how the whole conversation is is just around gender. And to some extent, it kind of makes sense given the fact that that where the struggle came from, I guess, was more from a gender perspective, as in how how the topic of diversity came to the table was around gender because it was was brought by white women, to be honest. Um, So it kind of makes sense as to why the discipline sort of, not the discipline, but the studies now focused on white women, but um, it's also a shame because I think I think there's so much that can be done um, when you look at kind of diversity, particularly of background and of nef- ethnicity. But Yes, even yeah. if historically was a feminine struggle because that was before we came. Exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like when when we came, the agenda changed. Exactly, the narrative yeah. now became, you know... Um, uh, the equal opportunities of, of, of people coming, the yeah. Windrush people, the Windrush yeah. generation yeah. coming in and say, well, okay, well, we're here now yeah. um, and we need opportunities. Um, yeah. we, we are human beings and we deserve the right to, to like all human beings, yeah. to fulfill our aspirations, yeah. to really uh, get the most out of this short life that we all have. And so that's where... The campaign started, but the beneficiaries largely mm. uh, have been. It's been deflected. Mm. I think it's been deflected that the fem- the female agenda has taken over, mm. uh, and which produces a degree of unfairness in my own view, mm. because what I'm seeing is that the spouses, the double income, mm. <laughs> the duck, uh, those who are enjoying, uh, there's some who are enjoying twofold. Mm. The male is in there. Yeah, and the wife is now in, wife, yeah. in there by virtue of all the uh, the, network. The, the network and equal opportunities agenda. Mm. And whereas on the black front, mm. uh, there's the double loss. Mm. Uh, neither the male nor the female yeah. is in there. Um, so I, th- I think there's some complacency creeping in. Law firms are saying, oh, we're much more diverse mm. than before. Barristers' chambers, the judiciary in particular, mm. they say, oh, we've got so many more women. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're doubling up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're asking you to open up, and you're doubling up. <laughs> um, and if could you tell us about the um, what it was about the min- the minimum wage? Like, why why was why was that a thing? Yes, uh, the the issue then was that um, uh, we I saw the minimum salary requirements um, that apply to trainee solicitors. I saw that as working against the interests of our community, Mm. that we just wanted to get in. Uh, We were ready to work for nothing. Mm. What we wanted, what we valued more was the opportunity Mm. rather than the uh, level of remuneration. Mm. Whereas um, (laughs) uh, those ones who were backing and insisting on a minimum salary were using it as a control mechanism because the only beneficiaries, when the law firms were had to pay a minimum of I forget what it was then about ten thousand uh, for trainees, when uh, black lawyers were ready to take, if necessary, nothing yeah. just to get 
qualified, yeah. you know, rather than be stuck out there because that, that minimum reduced the numbers that are available. Yeah. And um, it was actually maintaining the minimum level of earnings of the white trainees. Mm. So those who were trainees yeah. got a minimum level Never of earnings. earnings yeah. But our agenda, our cause, was those who weren't even getting, getting the training yeah, opportunity. And so our argument was to abolish the minimum wage uh, and just let the doors open. Let us come in. Uh, and uh, I'm amused to see that now, I think the minimum salary has now been abolished mm. uh, as far as the um, solicitors are mm -hmm. concerned. Mm -hmm. And as a result, a few more of our people are getting okay, through the door. Interesting. Um, and when I was reading your book, you kind of spoke or alluded to a lot of opportunities you got because you were the black guy. So you mentioned... Um, someone called Cantel Walsh um, and him taking you on like some program around USAID and that was funded by USAID and stuff mm. like that. I guess the the question I'm trying to ask is just, yeah, being the black guy, but did, did that open, did, like, would you say that did more harm? Uh, sorry, would you say that did more good than harm in terms of, because now you were the only one who had that perspective, you were the only one who had that background, did that work in your favour or...? Yes, there are circumstances when it can. Yeah. Because that was a that was a dinner with uh, Cantor Walsh was the commercial attaché at the U.S. Embassy, and um, uh, it was a chance encounter that led to the dinner appointments when he came in with uh, he, one of his juniors, and I uh, was dining with well, it was four of us, a partner within the law firm, and myself on one side, and Cantor, one of his subordinates. And the discussion was just flowing. And mm. because I was the odd man out, mm -hmm. in a way, um, uh, the question becomes, where are you from? Yeah. Nigeria. And that now leads to a discussion on Nigeria because yeah. I was, uh, at that stage, taking an interest in Nigerian political issues. Yeah. Um, and my analysis then led him to think that, well, this guy is potentially... Uh, uh, a player as far as the Nigerian political space is concerned yeah. and would like you to get to know America. Okay. Uh, it's probably the CIA trying to recruit me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> unsuccessfully. <laughs> uh, but um, there was then in America, all yeah. expenses paid. Oh, and yeah. so that, that was an instance in which um, your difference yeah. can turn to that's your true. advantage yeah. uh, and then becomes what you make of it yeah um so yes i it was a, it was a memorable trip mm. and then and then in terms of actually setting up your own company um what was that like what were the ch now you're the first you've broken down the barrier yes what's it now like <laughs> now that you're through the door oh it's awesome okay. <laughs> <laughs> i live an awesome life yeah uh, that i could not uh, that that's why i said earlier that Sometimes, if the road that you've set your mind on uh, doesn't open, uh, don't despair, because mm. sometimes that other road will lead you to a better place. Mm. And that other road has led me to a far better place, because in this better place, um, I'm in control, I'm mm. in charge, I make the decision, every decision. Mm. Uh, I make decisions in terms of the name of the firm. <laughs> simple yeah. as, what's the name firm going to be called? Yeah. Uh, simple things like that, to marketing strategy, to the uh, um, the kind of 
work we're going to do and the kind of work we're not going to do. Yeah. I make the judgment call such that there's a quality of life that I have, that my colleagues who were still at the bar, yeah. uh, who are still in the top city law firms, yeah. they don't yeah, have. have They're doing the same thing every single day. Yeah. My day, people ask me, you know, what do you do from day to day? It's such a variety, yeah. so varied. And, but I choose each time what I would do and what I won't do. Mm. So if a call comes through, there's a, a new inquiry put through to me, I'll listen to the person. If the legal issue interests me or it's something that I like doing, mm. I'll say, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll take, take it on. on yeah. If it's something that I don't like doing, I'll say, no, yeah. I, sorry. I'll refer somebody else to you yeah. and, uh, and I'll refer. So you're able then to sort of shape your life in a way that is really around you. Mm. Every minute of your day is about you, mm. is about what you want to do. Um, I have a work style now, where which I couldn't indulge in if I was still working for other people. Yeah. Uh, I generally don't start, get to the office till about 11 in the morning. Yeah. Not that I'm lazy. Yeah. Nice. You can <laughs> afford these luxuries. I don't, no, I don't right? get into the office till I'm about 11. I'll have a meal. Yeah. I have, um, don't normally have breakfast. I'll uh, have my lunch around uh, one o'clock. After lunch, around two, I'll do some maybe admin issues, unless they're really pressing issues that yeah. I might deal with the pressing issues. But generally, I don't like to start doing intellectual work till about five in the evening oh, when it's all got quiet and um, phones are silent mm. and I'm alone and then I'll work through till 10.30 depending yeah. I, if the work requires it yeah. I can stay there till 1 in the morning 2 in the morning oh, wow. um, the car is in the car park I'll yeah. get in the car and cruise, yeah. cruise home yeah. and as you're cruising home you're just playing my music so yeah. I've got my world all around yeah. you've yeah. made it convenient for you I've made it convenient it for, for me it's, it's all built around what I want to do yeah um, I, I take the kind of cases that I want to take on mm. uh, I argue the ones that I want to argue the ones I don't want to argue I'll engage a barrister to mm -hmm. go and argue mm -hmm. it uh, I have an office in Lagos uh, so I'm now again that part of that going home that started yeah. when I was 17, 18 is, is ongoing such yeah. that I have a, a small office in Lagos. Okay. Uh, from time to time, I'll go and spend a couple of weeks out there, um, uh, you know, be amongst my staff there. Yeah. Uh, different working environment completely. Yeah. Um, um, uh, uh, so I want to ask about that, actually. <laughs> so, um, well, I'll ask this question first, mm. just because I know a lot, of, a lot of my generation as well are thinking are looking at the opportunities presented to us here and are looking at some of the opportunities presented to us back home, whether mm. that's in Nigeria or in the Caribbean or in Kenya or wherever we're from, mm. um, and thinking about making that transition even at a young age home. What's, what's it like doing business back there? What's it like being the Brit? Um, I don't, well, I don't know if that's mm. how you're perceived, mm. but mm. what's it like now being the other, coming back home and trying to, to do business in, in, in that form? Um, I won't pretend that it's altogether easy. Yeah. But it's f great when you can get some work to do out there. Yeah. It's getting the work is a challenge. It's a challenge, yeah. Like everywhere, it's all relationships. Yeah. The ones back home who never left, 
they've schooled with these guys who are going to give the workout. They were at secondary school, uh, university. And friendships there are very, very strong. Mm. You know, the remarkable thing about the Nigerian community uh, and maybe also the community, the Caribbean back home, is that because they went to school together and they never left the territory, mm. those friendships go on oh, and really on strong, and on. Yeah. You know, they've known each other since they were age four, age five. Yeah. You hear that all the time. Yeah. Whereas in England, we, I don't know if it's your generation, but our generation, we lost many of our friends. Yeah. Uh, quite quickly. Um, uh, people move on and doing different things. Yeah. The, you're not living in the same space. Yeah. You're not working in the same space. Uh, so the relationship becomes a bit secondary. Yeah. Uh, so their networks are very strong. So breaking into those networks uh, a is a challenge. Yeah. But if you've got a special skill, yeah. uh, then the breakthrough is possible. Mm. Um, and when the breakthrough happens... And you start to get a flow of work, mm-hmm. uh, then it's so then good. It's yeah. so good. And so I would encourage the young ones to keep the door open. Yeah. You know, don't let that door close. Yeah. You know, keep your toe in there. That so keep prodding and probing, looking for that opening, and mm. then and don't be over ambitious when the opening comes. Yeah. And, and sell up your house, <laughs> sell yeah, up your business, yeah. sell up your car, and say, right, I'm moving back. Because <laughs> you may find most of them come running back very quickly. Yeah. But if you could take it in small doses yeah. and just say, okay, I'm going to establish something small and viable. Yeah. You know, you've got to be, I, your business approach has to be uh, much more uh, focused and rigorous over there. Because mm. you're, you're, you know you're not going to be there all the time. Mm-hmm. So your business model has to be really stingy, low-cost, yeah. mean, yeah. Uh, you know, and just wait for it to take off rather than push it yeah. because of the, the fact that you're not part of the network. It will yeah. take a little longer uh, to open up. But when you do get a product, if you've got a product, you've got a skill, there's a hunger for skills. I love working with my lawyers on the... Uh, on the ground back home, I can see the potential. Yeah. I can see that the, the raw brilliance is there and the hunger for knowledge. And there's a, there's a loyalty as well uh, that is often not spoken of, real dedication mm. um, to the work. Uh, I've got a young lawyer out there, super brilliant. It reminds me of a young me. Mm. Uh, super brilliant, dedicated, hardworking, hunger for knowledge, hunger for growth. And I'm in a, position to skill him up yeah you know um, skill him up to international standards yeah um, passing over the training that I received yeah in the city law firms pass it over to him um, and I could see him responding and um, and, and I could see a really brilliant future mm. ahead from that and that gives you satisfaction as well yeah. because achievement uh, cannot be measured simply in monetary terms yeah. I'm not the richest, far from it. I'm not a rich lawyer, but I'm one of the most successful black lawyers. Yeah. Largely because of the non-monetary dimensions. Yeah. The things that I've done, yeah. the breakthroughs that I've had, yeah. and the frontiers that I've crossed, the boundaries that I've shifted. That is my measure of yeah. success. Um, you know, Doing the stuff that hasn't been done before. Uh, breaking through, p- 
pushing through. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, taking on the big law firms all by your little self. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's, you know, it's... It's you, a big thing, yeah. You don't measure it all in money. If, we yeah. get, if you measure stuff in money, you can lose the... You, you lose the proper sense of worth and purpose in life. Mm. It's about achievements. And um, kind of going to what you said about sort of tr- helping to upskill um, that member of staff in Nigeria. Um, obviously, I know, I know your sister's a finance minister in Nigeria. Mm. You've got this company back in Nigeria. Mm. I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is how imp- what's, the, what's the importance of the diaspora kind of going back home and investing in in our countries and in, in helping them you know you kind of spoke about bringing that lawyer to an international standard mm. you know what do you think the role is of 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 the diaspora both your generation as well as my generation in sort of going back home and investing in in well in in in, in the local economy or society yeah i i think the I want the members of the diaspora to really understand the opportunities uh, that they have, and and your generation in particular, mm. uh, who are better positioned to make that realization at an earlier stage in their lives than we did. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in the later stages of life that people like me appreciating what we can do, the difference we can make, mm. and if that lesson life lesson comes to your generation earlier and you guys can respond to it and seize it then the possibilities are enormous Mm -hmm. you mentioned my sister she's a classic case um she's yes she's the finance minister in nigeria and if everybody anybody has said is it possible that a girl who was born in england raised in england never went to nigeria until she was i think she went for holiday when she was about 18. Oh, wow. A short holiday. For, I didn't even know that. Myself, yes, so that's yes, crazy. yes. I didn't even know she was born yeah, here yeah, as well. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was born here. Yeah, uh, and she's the Minister of Finance. Yeah, okay, so, you know. and See not, what you can achieve, people, when, yeah. you, when, you, when, you, when you put your mind to when it. When you put your gone. mind to it. Not speaking the language. Yeah. Not speaking the language at all. So she can't speak Yoruba She all. couldn't speak oh, Yoruba. Okay, yeah. Now she speaks Yoruba, she can sell me Yoruba. <laughs> <laughs> she can sell me Yoruba easily. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, her journey is remarkable. Yeah. Uh, but I want it to be an inspiration for the members of the diaspora because I, I repeat again, she was born here, lived all her life here, only went for holiday when she was about 18 and uh, came back here, living her life here, worked, qualified as an accountant here, um, running various businesses here. Uh, she, she always used to dabble in business. And then she met a Nigerian, uh, met her husband. They're married. Um, he wants to go back home. Mm. She went home with him. She started working there, uh, got a job. Mm. Um, one job leads to another. Then an opportunity opens. She's an accountant. And um, her boss uh, was, he had left the business to go and run as uh, commissioner for finance for Lagos State. Okay. And then she's recommended to become commissioner for finance in Ogun State. Okay. And she performs well. Yeah. 
Uh, she couldn't speak the language then, yeah. <laughs> but as, now she's got a toe in the door. She realizes and understands the imperative yeah. of getting that language yeah. and the language and the important lesson for, for from her experience is how is it it how it it is possible. I wouldn't say easy. Yeah. It is possible to make that full transition back. Yeah, where now she speaks the language fully. Yeah, and she's in the political space. Yeah, fully. And all that was done before she was 50. Yeah. And crazy. so... It's interesting, actually. It, and only because of time, I'd probably ask mm, more questions mm. about this. But the other person you mentioned that you were a city lawyer with was Dele Martins. Yes. And obviously, if you know much about the history of Nigeria, the Martins um, are one of the many returnee families that mm. came over in the, like, 19th, 18th century mm. um, from from uh, the New World, as it was called then, yes. um, who've now fully integrated in Nigeria and have mm. very much... Yoruba people and mm. there are all sorts of surnames that, mm. that that Yoruba people would would or Nigerian people would recognise as kind of those returnee um, type people or, or from from those returnee families. Mm. But I think it's something that a lot of us take for granted because we haven't seen it, mm. at least in our generation. But if you do do your history, if you do your Googles, you'll find that there there has been this big wave of of people who came back. And have settled, created a life, and are now part of the establishments mm. in, in in their respective countries. Mm. Um, but yeah, we, 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 the next um, people are coming for the next podcast mm. shortly, so mm. I do need to wrap up. But yes. um, to wrap up, um, uh, well, there's two questions we I, I like to ask everyone um, to wrap up. So the first one is if you could go back in time. You're speaking to an audience of millennials now. If you could go back in time um, to our age, let's pick 25, what advice would you give yourself going forward? And then based on that... Well, actually, if you could answer that question, I'll ask you the next question. Yes, 25, um, knowing what I know now, Mm. um, I would... I, um, I would certainly engage I would have engaged with home perhaps a little earlier Mm. Uh, because as I said there are opportunities there at that young age of 25 if you really want to go back home it's possible Mm. (laughs) it is possible Mm. you're young enough yeah you don't have the you don't have a family yeah yeah, you're you're young enough if you could just have the courage to say take a year out from life Mm. and you know, go out there. I went to law school in Nigeria okay. when I was, uh, after I did the English bar. Okay. Um, and it was around that age of 25 mm. that I said, I'm going out there. I want to have, explore the possibility of going back home. Yeah. And a year of study out there was really helped to clear my mind in terms of identity. Because identity is the thing that we struggle with in this country most of mm. all. It's that cross that we that we carry. Mm. And I think the Nigerian experience when I was 25, that one year that I spent... Sorry to bite, because you just um, pressed a button on your phone. Yeah, go on. That one year that I spent in Nigeria was critically formative. I met my wife there. Yeah. I felt more connected with the country. Yeah. And it led me to now writing the history of the country. Yeah. I mean, that was only possible 
it was largely possible because of that year's experience mm. of immersing myself in the system. So I would encourage uh, your generation. Well, that was about to be the next question. Yes. What, what's your advice for, for the millennials that are listening now? Yes, there are positives in immersing yourself yeah. back home uh, for that one year, uh, one year only. And if not you, yeah. make sure your children yeah. get the opportunity because then you are anchored in your identity. Yeah. And you feel that nobody can ever put you down in those circumstances mm. when, you're, when you're truly anchored in your identity, mm. uh, as I am, as a result of that experience. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I'd, I'd just like to give you the opportunity quickly, just in wrapping up. Um, I know you've got a new book out of Fatherless People, which, depending on where the camera is, is above your, your shoulder. Um, and I'll feature a little picture. If you could just tell, tell us a bit about this book, what made you write it, what's it about? Yeah, it's... it's I know it's, you've written four books as well, so yeah, if, if but you want to talk this about is the big as well, one. Yeah. This is the big one, because this is the one going to the issue of our connection, the diaspora, and our connection with home. Yeah. Because um, the books that had been written were about Nigeria, were yeah. largely written by the white community. Yeah. Um, where there were Nigerians writing the history, it was generally in collaboration with the white community. Yeah. And whenever that happened, however fair-minded they can be, it's not fully our story. Yeah. And I saw that, especially when history had been taken off the syllabus in Nigeria. Yeah. And so the Niger those growing up in Nigeria weren't being taught their history. Yeah. And those growing up here weren't being taught their history yeah. because it wasn't in the syllabus. Yeah. So there was this vacuum of knowledge. Yeah. And um, I started just to educate myself mm. to say, I want to understand Nigeria. Why, why it's dysfunctional when I know uh, our parents are very capable people, mm. very well educated, good values. Why are those ones not running the show? Mm. And instead we've got this narrative of failure and uh, buffoonery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I want to get to the bottom of that and that's what drove me first to research for myself. Yeah. Then having found the answer and the understanding to now take on the mission of educating a generation. Mm. and uh, what a mission it is. I'm loving it. Well, thank you very much. I'm sure lots of people benefit from that and lots of people benefit from from today, just hearing, hearing your story and hearing your journey. So thank you very much for coming in. And again, as I keep saying, as I've said this every week to, to the people listening, um, you know, I just, I just think it's important for us to really listen to the stories of, of your generation, um, hear the things you've overcome, hear the barriers you've broken down, in the success you've made for yourself um, and also to open our eyes to what, what's available and what's possible for us. You know, it's, it's crazy to hear about your sister's journey, the fact that she's not a native of Nigeria, but the fact that she still managed to become um, the finance minister where she is there, which is, you know, probably top three most important jobs in the country, um, if not top two. So, um, yes, it's, it's very inspiring. So, so too is your story. And, um, yeah, thank you for sharing it. And, um, yeah, is it, is it, do you have any social medias, any, any like a website or anything that people, yes, people uh, want to find uh, out Yes, uh, Once you Google Deliogun, you'll find me. Okay, yeah. okay, brilliant. <laughs> well, thank you thank very you much. Thank you very much for inviting right. me. Thank Cheers. You. All right, thank you. Thank you.